As I think back over my childhood, I can think of several things, activities that I gave up. Maybe a little too easily. Maybe too quickly. I wasn't a very athletic kid. And my parents every year would say, hey, you know, don't you want to play t-ball? Don't you want to do little league? No, no, not interested in that. Just wasn't me. Just wasn't suited for that and didn't, wasn't interested in that, into other things. I did, however, play one season of indoor soccer. And my goal that season was to score one goal. I just wanted one. Not two, not five, not ten. One goal. And by the end of that season, I had not scored my one goal. And so, you know, I hung up my cleats. at the, or I did, We didn't even wear cleats. See, see, I don't know anything about sports. It was indoor soccer. I hung up my soccer uniform after that season was over, never picked it up again, never played again. Um, sometimes we would go fishing when I was a kid. And after a few times, I was like, I'm not interested in that anymore. That takes too much time for very little reward. You know, maybe if I had stuck with that, I would have come to enjoy that. Maybe some of those, those of you who fish, I, I would now go fishing with you. But because I gave it up then, I just... I don't see the appeal. I'm sorry. I don't want to offend anybody out there who likes to fish, but I gave that up quickly and easily, and I haven't really been interested in it since. I think about in middle school PE, which I really dreaded every time we would go to PE, especially when we would play dodgeball. And a lot of the boys were bigger and taller and stronger than me, and I would do my very best to, you know, stick out a leg so that a ball would hit. And I said, oh, I've been hit. I have to go up to the bleachers and have a seat. So, you know, to this day, the sight of a dodgeball strikes terror within my heart. And, you know, I, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but the fastest way to get me to stop preaching if I'm going too long one morning would probably be just to hold up a dodgeball. And I would run to the back of that auditorium screaming like a little girl. I can guarantee you that. There were several things in my childhood that I gave up a little too quickly, a little too easily. In our text today, Israel gives up a little too quickly, a little too easily, but their decision to give up is much more consequential than any of the examples that I have given you so far this morning because they decided to give up on the Lord. They decided to turn their back on their God, and they fashioned for themselves a golden calf to worship. You see, not very long before in the book of Exodus, they had heard God speak from on top of Mount Sinai. That's chapter 20, verse 22. They had heard the voice of God boom down from the top of the mountain. And not long after that, they had agreed to keep the covenant that God wanted to form with them. That grand relationship that he had set up, that, that covenant that he wanted to have with his people Israel, and they said no fewer than two times, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. We agree to do what you've told us to do. We agree to obey. They said that to God. But now look at them. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, we read these words. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, listen to how they talk about Moses, their deliverer. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses had gone up on the mountain accompanied by Joshua. We read about in Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 and 13. And he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Just 40 days and 40 nights? It's not really that long a period of time. He was up there receiving the law from God. God was delivering the law to him so that he could pass it on to the people so that they could follow it. But 40 days and 40 nights was too long for the people of Israel. And because Moses delayed in coming down, they quickly turned to other gods. And we read this verse and we think, come on! Why would you so swiftly turn your back on God? But if we're honest with ourselves, and we ought to be among those who are the most honest with ourselves as people who are open to God's leading, as people who are open to His Word, we ought to be able to examine ourselves to check our, the condition of our hearts. And if we are honest with ourselves this morning, we would admit that we are also quick to turn to other gods when there's a delay. Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. And when we don't think that we are getting what we need from God, if we don't think He's giving us what we want, then we will swiftly turn to other sources to receive that. We turn to other gods just like they did. Let's keep reading in verse 2 here. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Verse 4, He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Isn't it distressing? Isn't it disappointing that Aaron... The brother of Moses is so quickly persuaded to go along with this terrible plan to fashion this graven image so that the people could worship. He doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't hesitate at all. He says, all right, let's do it. Aaron. Aaron had seen God, according to chapter 24, verse 9 of Exodus, along with the other elders of Israel. He had seen God, been in His presence And when Moses went up on the mountain, he left Aaron and another leader in charge. He said, if anybody has a dispute, go to Aaron. He'll solve your problems for you. And of course, Aaron and his sons and his descendants were supposed to be priests for God, according to the Old Testament law. And now this, Aaron is even on board. And of course, if you've been reading your Bible, you noticed his excuse a little bit later I've talked to you, uh, some of you, about Aaron's excuse when Moses gets back down the mountain and he confronts Aaron. He says, what happened? What did these people say to you? What did they do to you to convince you to do this? And he said, well, they said, make us gods who shall go before us. And so I said, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. That's what a kid would say. I mean... My children have made excuses that are less lame than that one. If it wasn't so pathetic, it would be hilarious. I threw all this gold into the fire and out popped this calf. Can you believe that, Moses? I doubt Moses bought it for a second. Even Aaron was swept away in this call to to build an idol. 
What does that demonstrate? I think, among other things, it demonstrates that anyone, regardless of their status in God's family, regardless of their spiritual maturity or how established they are in the faith, anyone, anyone among our number can be tempted to worship an idol. Anyone is susceptible to idolatry. But what is idolatry? I think this is a good time for us to stop and ask because so far we've sort of been dancing around it. We've been in the text. I want to hop out of the text for a little bit and talk about some big picture stuff. Let's think about what does this word idolatry mean? Because a lot of us might think that it's a then problem and not a now problem. That idolatry is something that God's people in the Old Testament especially, but also in the New Testament, struggled with. But we don't struggle with that today. Because we look at this passage and we think to ourselves, we would never do what they did. We would never build for ourselves a calf made out of gold and bow down before it. That just seems ludicrous. But they did what they did because they had seen that done to great effect in their mind in Egypt. It had not been very long that they had come out of Egypt. And in Egypt, there were gods upon gods upon gods. And there were idols and statues everywhere. And they had witnessed the people of Egypt worshiping all of these idols. And they had seen that, you know, the people of Egypt experienced great success. It worked for them. Maybe it'll work for us. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. We find ourselves in this hopeless, desperate situation Maybe what worked in Egypt will work for us. Let's build this calf. So they look at what they saw in Egypt and they try to borrow it. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are the gods of our culture that we try to borrow? It's not a golden calf, of course. But that is not, that is not the extent of idolatry. What are the gods of our culture that we try to borrow, that we worship? The God of sex? The God of power? What about our country? We love our country. We're thankful to live in the greatest nation on the earth, but make no mistake, we all need to be aware that patriotic pride can quickly slip into idolatry. We really should all be aware of that and be on guard against that. Do we try to borrow the God of our career? We worship our work. What about our stuff, our resources, our money, our belongings? What about sports? How about pleasure? How about our family? What about your spouse, your husband, or your wife? Of course, we know that marriage is a relationship ordained by God, precious to God. But our wives and our husbands are not our gods. And our children are not our gods. I think that as I look around, one of the greatest temptations to idolatry in in our society today is our kids. We have placed our kids on the throne of our lives and they determine how our schedule is worked out and the activities that we plan. For some of us, we are tempted to idolize our children. And so there are gods in our culture today that we are tempted to borrow just as the people of Israel were tempted to borrow what they saw in Egypt. 
You see, idolatry can be bowing before another god. It can be that. But it can also be making something that's not a god into a god. Into your god. I like how Tim Keller, a Christian author, defines an idol. What is an idol? This is very helpful to me. He says, an idol is anything that's more important to you than God. And how do you determine if something is more important to you than God? Well, he says, it's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. So what is that for you? And we could also add to to your heart and your imagination, we could add your time. We can determine what it is we worship by looking at how we spend our time. Where you spend your money, your energy, what you're thinking about. It's anything that's more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs a part of who you are more than God, more than His church, more than His Son, more than His Word. It's anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. So what can only God, the true and living God, the Father of Jesus Christ, what can only He give? Only He can give life. Only He can provide forgiveness. Only He can give salvation and peace and hope and joy. And when you begin to look for those things in other places, then you have begun to follow after false gods, idols. An idol is whatever you look at and say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, whatever that is, then I will feel that my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I will feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. What are you worshiping? What is your idol? Here's Paul from the New Testament. Paul says it well. For although they knew God, he's speaking here of unbelievers, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So they knew who God was. They knew about Him, but they didn't treat Him like God. They didn't have Him on the throne of their lives. They knew He was out there, but they didn't give Him the honor and the glory and the worship that He requires and that He deserves. Let's keep going. Verse 25 of Romans 1, where we're reading. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And and this gets to the heart of it here. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That says it succinctly. This is idolatry. Worshiping that which is created instead of the creator. And so idolatry is not just a then problem. It is as much a now problem as it ever has been. We struggle as much or more now with idolatry than any of our ancestors in the faith. We are tempted to worship idols as much now as the people of Israel were then. And as we keep reading in Exodus, we discover some vital truths about idolatry. And now that you know that you are susceptible to idolatry, now that you know it is a temptation for you, maybe we will read this not just thinking about Israel, not just seeking to kick around Israel for what they did and saying, come on, guys, how could you do that? But thinking about us and our hearts and how we're tempted. Let's keep reading in Exodus chapter 32, verse, second part of verse 4. After Aaron had built the golden calf, all the people gathered around and said, these are your gods, little g, O Israel. 
who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What I want to observe first here is that idols are offensive to the one true God. Can you imagine what a slap in the face it must have been when God heard His people say, these are the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? I mean, the audacity for them to say that. We, as we've read Exodus, we know all that God has done, had done for them. He had raised up Moses to be their deliverer. He had orchestrated and executed the ten plagues to showcase His power and might. The plagues, by the way, corresponded with various deities or gods of Egypt. They had a god of the flies and a god of the frogs and a god of hail. And God's plan with all those plagues was to say, I am more powerful than all your gods combined. God did that to show that He is the one true and living God. He parted the waters of the Red Sea so that His people could walk through on dry land with a wall of water to their left and right. He rescued them out of the hands of the Egyptian soldiers. And when they got on the other side and God had destroyed the Egyptian army, they sang a song that we call the Song of Moses. And we just finished singing some lines from that song. That new contemporary song takes some of the lines from the ancient Song of Moses that the people of Israel sang after God delivered them. They sang, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? doing wonders. They sang, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. They sang, the Lord will reign forever and ever. God had provided pillars of cloud and fire to lead them through the wilderness. He had given them bread from heaven. He had provided water from the rock. And they cobble together a lifeless idol and they give it the credit. And they say that it led them out of Egypt. That it is the reason they were rescued and delivered? And they're going to seek guidance from that? What a slap in the face to God. How offended God must have been. How disappointed in His people He must have been. But God is just as offended today when we look to other sources to give us what only God can give us. When we cast our eyes on worthless, lifeless idols in our day and age, God is just as offended. It is just as much a slap in the face today as it was then. Idols are offensive to the one true God. Let's keep reading in verse 5. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. This is a very interesting verse. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He uses the personal name of God. The name that God had revealed to Moses when God said, what shall I tell the people your name? The Lord, Yahweh. So what's going on here? They've just built an altar. I mean, they've just built an idol. But now Aaron is saying, we will build an altar to the Lord. Well, what Aaron's saying is, hey, we're not getting rid of God. We're not done with God. We just want to make some other gods to go alongside him. Is that a problem? Absolutely it's a problem. Because it's out of accord with the first two commands that God had given His people. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, You shall have no other gods before Me. Command 2, You shall have no carved image and bow down to it. 
There may be no other gods before me or besides me, God says. God is a jealous God. He has every right to be jealous because he is our creator and he is our redeemer. And he knows that we would be foolish to place a God that we've created alongside him. So number two, idols cannot coexist with God. And yet we do this today. We like to have God on our side. And we like to come to church. And we like to worship. And we sing the song of Moses as the people of Israel sang. And yet we'll go out here and we'll worship the God of sex and the God of power and the God of our careers and our families and our country and our money. And God is just as disgusted today with that type of behavior as he was then. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. Your heart shall not be divided between me and these other gods. You shall have nothing that absorbs your heart and imagination more than me. You shall have nothing that is more important to you than me. You shall not seek to give you what only I can give you. Only I can give you meaning and joy and peace and forgiveness and salvation. You shall have no other gods before me. No idols can exist alongside God. No other gods with God. It wasn't okay then, it's not okay now. And then as we read in verse 7, God, God knows, of course God knows what's going on down in the valley. He's up with Moses. He says, I want, to know, I want you to know what your people are down there doing. He says, your people, not my people. That's what God says. Your people are down there worshiping a false god. And God entertains the idea of destroying every last one of them. And starting over with Moses. But Moses Moses talks him out of it. Moses intercedes and God relents. And Moses goes down the mountain with Joshua. And they begin to hear noise coming from the camp. And they at first think that it's the noise of battle. But then they say, no, it's not the noise of battle. It's the noise of song and mirth and merriment. And they come upon this scene where the people are worshiping an idol after just 40 days and 40 nights of Moses being up in the mountain receiving the law of God. You know, there's a great kids movie that's based on the story of the Exodus called The Prince of Egypt. And I've been meaning to show this to the girls because we've been talking about our readings and it does a great job. It takes some creative license here and there. It adds a few things, you know, to, to beef it up. But the ending is misleading. That movie ends on a high note with Moses coming down the mountain with the two tablets with the law written on them by the finger of God and it's a grand and glorious moment and the music is soaring and it ends on a high point. That is not what happens here. Moses comes down into the camp to this site and he burns hot with anger and he throws the tablets down and look what happens in verse 20. In Exodus chapter 32 verse 20 He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and he made the people of Israel drink it. So number three, we need to observe that idols, all idols, whatever idols stand in our hearts, besides the true and living God, they must be torn down, they must be destroyed. Do you mind if we diagnose some idols in our lives as we begin to close out today? I want to ask a question. Well, I want to begin a sentence. And if you finish it in one of the following ways, 
then you probably have an idol in your life that needs to be destroyed just as this calf was destroyed. And this is a question that also comes from Tim Keller. Here's how the sentence begins. The sentence begins this way. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if. Let's finish the sentence in various ways. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. That's power idolatry. It only has meaning or worth if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. That's what we might call approval idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience or if I have a particular quality of life that's comfort idolatry. If I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of this or that, that's control idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. That's helping idolatry. If someone is there to protect me and keep me safe, dependence idolatry. If I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone, that's a temptation in our culture, is it not? That's independence, idolatry. If I am highly productive and getting a lot done, my toes are starting to hurt. Are yours? That's work idolatry. That one sounds awfully familiar to me. If I am being recognized for my accomplishments, excelling in my work, receiving validation from my peers, that's achievement idolatry. If I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, nice possessions, if we could just get that bill paid off, if we could get that debt down, that's materialism idolatry. If I am adhering to my religion's moral codes, if I am accomplished in its activities, that's religion idolatry. Did you know that church work can even be idolatrous if we are doing it for the wrong reasons? Even that can become an idol if we are not checking on the condition of our hearts Life only has meaning or I only have worth if this one person is in my life, just that one person. And if he or she is happy to be there, and if he or she is happy with me, that's individual person idolatry. If I feel I am totally independent of organized religion and I'm living by a self-made morality, there's no such thing, that's irreligion, idolatry. If my race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior, that's racial or cultural idolatry. If a particular social group or professional group or any other group lets me in, my life only has meaning or worth, if that's the case, inner ring idolatry. What about this one? If my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me, family idolatry. If Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me, relationship idolatry. If I am hurting, if I am in a problem, only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. That's suffering idolatry. And that one may sound weird to you. A lot of us have a lot of drama in our lives. And we like to complain about it. And we like to complain about the problems that we have. But if we're honest with ourselves, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves if that kind of stuff wasn't in our lives. That might be your idol. Two more, my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence or power, ideology, idolatry. And last one, if I have a particular kind of look or body image, 
if I physically feel appealing. That's image idolatry. These idols and many more must be burned up and ground to dust before the one true God. At the end of the day, we need to ask this question. Which of these idols can save you? Which of these idols can guide you? Not a one. And if a person has become an idol for you, if that person has become your Savior, then what happens when you're looking at your Savior in a coffin? Who's going to help you then? Who's going to guide you then? But you serve a God, the Son of the living God, who didn't remain in a coffin, who didn't remain in a tomb, who came back to life, and who lives and reigns forever at the right hand of the living God. And He's the only one who died for your sins. There's no idol who died for your sins. In fact, maybe you need to start asking that question. Did this thing, or did this person, or did this group, or did this idea, did that die for for my sins? No. Only one God was willing to die for your sins. Listen, idolatry is serious business. It's serious business then, it's serious business now. And it requires repentance. We ought to be willing to repent. When we find this kind of stuff in our hearts, we ought to be willing to say, I have gone astray. I am wrong. My heart is filled with all of these other affections that are not God. And they are above God. And I know I shouldn't have them besides God. God punishes His people. He disciplines them. But what is remarkable is that in Exodus chapter 34, just two chapters later, He reestablishes His covenant with them. After what they did. After turning their backs on Him. After all He did for them. Building that stupid calf. Worshipping it like it was going to do something for them. Like it had done something for them. God turns around two chapters later. And He extends His grace and His mercy to them. And if we're willing to repent, then God will extend His mercy and grace to us. If we're willing to turn away from our idols. The Lord in that chapter declares this about His character. He says, something that is repeated often in the Old Testament, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that is the same Lord that we worship and follow today. And He extends His love and His mercy and His grace to you if you would only come and receive it. You can come this morning and follow after Him, turn away from your worthless idols and name Him as the one true and living God like He is. You can repent of your sins, confess that you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You can be baptized to have those washed away. Just as Richie was earlier in the week. Just like Kaylee you can make that same glorious decision this morning. If you're struggling in any way, if you need the prayers of this body of believers, if you want to say, I will turn to lifeless, worthless idols no more. I want to be sold out. I want to be solely devoted to the one true and living God. You have a chance to come and say that right now as we stand and sing.